Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is 2 p.m. on the West Coast in California on March the 15th. We're getting back to normality moving also towards spring 2021. Uh, I guess the normalcy is, is a post-Biden, post-COVID <laughs> normalcy. Um, one thing that points, I think, to things coming back to normal, uh, in addition to the appearance of spring, fortunately, is that Americans are once again obsessed with immigration reform. Uh, the House of Representatives apparently is taking up immigration reform amid what ABC News is calling a border crisis. Uh, so we're back to border crises rather than uh, Trump's antics. We have the crisis of immigrant children again being held inside an overcrowded facility uh, on the Mexican border. New York Times is suggesting that desperation as migrant traffic builds up once again. And the Times reports that the migrants' hopes have been drummed up by human smugglers who promised that President Biden's administration will welcome them. So that the drumming up of hopes for immigrants is back on, 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 on the radar. Um, America then seems to be a place that people want to come to again. My guest on the show today is an expert both on immigration, the idea of America, and her own history reflects that. Uh, her name is Roya Hakekian, and she's the author of a really intriguing new book called A Beginner's Guide to America. Um, Roya, in all seriousness, uh, the, the crisis on the southern border, of course, is no joking matter in any way, particularly for those children tragically uh, now in prison. But do you think if they happen to have the opportunity to read your new book, A Beginner's Guide to America, for the immigrant and the curious that still want to come to this country? Um, hi, and it's a pleasure to be with you and uh, with your audience. Um, I think they will still want to come to America. I, um, I tried to write this book in order to both make the immigrant more more accessible and knowable to readers, to uh, native-born Americans, but also to uh, make America more knowable and accessible to the immigrants. So uh, I think they would still want to come. Um, however, I think the bigger problem is, in my view, as I think you alluded to it, um, how many immigrants uh, can we possibly get and, and is our acceptance really the answer to to the major problem of immigration, especially at the southern border. In all fairness, Roya, your book is not a, a book about immigration. It's a it's it's a book about uh about America itself and, and and as I said, you call it a beginner's guide to America. Um you yourself uh were born in was born in Iran and you're the author of a couple of very acclaimed books about uh Middle Eastern politics and culture. Assassins of the Turquoise Palace and Journey from the Land of Noah. And, and I thought 
I really enjoyed. I've been reading your book all day. Um, to <laughs> me, in many ways, and I'm sure this is something that other people have told you, this is as much a book about you and your family and your experience as about America. You, you dedicate the book to your father, um, the first Hakakian to write, the last Hakakian to arrive in America. Tell me about <laughs> your father. Oh, he passed away since I published the last book. So it's been a very bittersweet time for me because uh, he 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 was the one who was particularly proud whenever I um, published a book, especially in English, since um, it is a second language um, for me and it was for him. Um, my father was born and raised in a very, in a very small village in Iran um, near uh Qom, Iran, which uh, and Qom, as you may know, um, is where you know the equivalent of the Vatican is for mm. Shiite Iran. It's where all the uh, Shiite seminaries are, and it's where everybody gets religious training. So it was very odd because my dad and several of um, his family. Uh, we're living in a in a small village near there called and, and this is of course spelled q o m you you pronounce it with a g it seems but most of us will know it as q o m right right um so my father belonged to one of very few rare jewish families that were in that vicinity and um and later on he he left the small village he came to tehran the capital of iran and um, became a first lieutenant in the army, and uh, that was a very big deal, given where he had been born and raised. It, you know, he he kind of uh, really had a major odyssey, um, traveling from the small village, being a Jewish boy who had once not allowed to attend school because of severe anti-Semitism that uh, existed in that area. Um, and then, you know, he made a second odyssey and um, brought us all to America. And um, and I think I would like to think that he would have been um, proud of um, how I have come full circle. I started um, with my first book, uh, telling the stories of uh, Iran's cataclysm through the revolution. And I ended it with, um, you know, the, the whole journey with uh, coming to America. Do you think that there's a generational shift between you and your father? You came here in the mid '80s. Your father, yeah. of course, is of a quite different generation. Do you think he had a a purer image? Do you think America, to your father, a, a young or a, a, a Jewish man brought up near a Qom in um, in a, in a revolutionary, in an Islamic revolutionary Iran? Do you think he saw America in a more idealistic sense than you? Do you see your book, in other words? as in some ways uh, a, a realist take on America, you seem ambivalent in some ways about America. Mm -hmm. um, well, I decided to write the book in 2016 when, um, when the anti-immigrant rhetoric um, was at a, at a peak and when, you know, Donald Trump um, rose to power and, you know, Iran the place where I come from was among the very first countries that were placed under a Muslim ban. So I, I really felt compelled. I felt that I had to say something. I had to object to this vision of America that he was putting forth. But then I had to offer 
um, a separate vision um, of the America that I thought I had discovered upon arriving here as a refugee myself. So um, if there is any ambivalence, it's, it's sort of the tension between what America was um, or was becoming uh, in 2016 as I decided to write the book and the America that had admitted me, um, you know, a 19-year-old with just a backpack and no English. And, and I think that I feel more, far more attached and indebted to the America in which I arrived than the America that uh, Trump was trying to portray for, for all Americans and for the rest of the world. There seems to be, um, Roya, something almost s- cinematic about your impression of America. The, the Beginner's Guide offers, um, offers um, uh, the image of, of, of stepping onto the America street. When you step onto the street for the first time, an awestruck feeling will wash over you, you write, as advice to, to new immigrants. You will be exhausted but alert to it. Kind of reminded me, I don't know if you know the movie, Hitchcock's mm-hmm. Great. North by Northwest, the beginning of this city life. But I know you're based in in Connecticut and you settled on the East Coast, but there's another America, Roya, that we talk about a lot in this show, the Mm -hmm. America of a disappearing interior. Kerry Arsenault's book, uh, Milltown, did did a very good job on this. Here is an image of the other America. did you, do you think, were you in some ways seduced by the, the cinematic quality of America? Do you sometimes think of America as a, an old-fashioned movie from the uh-huh. 60s or 70s or 80s? Actually, I, I didn't uh, grow up with, with those movies because it, it um, you know, I was barely a teenager when the Iranian, the Islamic revolution swept through Iran and all of those things, we were, we were stripped of all of those things, including America itself. Um, I told a friend of mine um, who was very shocked that I didn't have English uh, in high school in Iran that, you know, the very first thing that was banned when I was in high school was uh, the language, the English language itself. And, and I uh, went through high school learning Arabic instead as a second language. So um, to answer your question, uh, that I didn't have those um, ideal images of America. What what I was trying to describe in that passage, rather, was the overwhelming feeling that I had, um, you know, just taking in the sheer size of this country, um, and the, and the overwhelming feeling that the landscape alone gives so many of us who come from especially other continents where, you know, um, you know, water is not as abundant and, you know, forests that are, are not, you know, trees are not so uh, part of the landscape. And, you know, I, I was just trying to describe um, throughout the book that the number of changes that we have to adapt uh, to when we come here as immigrants, especially from, you know, um, non-Western nations, uh, Western European nations, are just overwhelming. I had to, I had to adjust to the, la- the palette um, that, that was around me. You know, I didn't grow up with blue and green um, so much that is part of my current landscape. I, I used to see a lot of, you know, gold and brown and gray. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think, you know, I, I wanted to make all these 
small observations when um, in 2016, uh, especially because um, immigrants were being painted as criminals. And it was very important for me to first and foremost say that we come here, um, at least the overwhelming majority of us come here because we want a new beginning. And that, you know, we are so uh, overcome by so many uh, changes and resettling and adjusting um, to, to being uprooted and being transplanted is such a major change that, that to think that in addition to all that, you want to go and do something <laughs> illegal too um, would have been unthinkable to me and I think to most other immigrants who come here like me. So I, I, I thought it was really important to, uh, to make all these observations because uh, I thought, you know, just painting the reality was the most important thing I could do uh, to, to fight the, uh, the cliches or the stereotypes that were circulating. Yeah, definitely. You, you do paint, paint a reality. You talk about a new palette. And you talk about coming here with a fresh beginning, but there's a certain, I wouldn't say sadness, but a disappointment in some ways, I think, about the book. You say you go, you give advice, you, you say you, you go to a supermarket and you see the remarkable size of the apples gleaming and curvaceous without a flaw on their, in their skins. Um, they're like, you, you call these apples like still life paintings. But then you note that, this this fruit is scentless, that it's not real. Uh, mm-hmm. And like so many other people who mm-hmm. arrive in America from Tocqueville onwards, mm-hmm. there's a certain kind of, uh, I don't know whether you would call it an existential loneliness, a disappointment about your impression of America. You're searching for reality and it doesn't seem as if you ever quite reach it. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, that is exactly so, and and um, you are an excellent reader. Um, it's a it's a mixed blessing, isn't it? I mean, you come here, and so many things that you um, had not expected um, are here, um, and they are surprising, wonderful discoveries. And then, on the other hand, um, there is this constant loneliness, despite the people who surround you, even despite, um, you know, in my own case, relatives who had already been here, but they were not quite the same relatives that I had known in Iran. Something about them had changed. You know, we, for lack of a better word, we call it Americanization, but there is something frosty that seems to come over uh, people, you know, over time. And, And we seem to gain so much um, by way of, you know, material living, we seem to improve uh, as far as our physical lives are concerned. But then we also seem to miss or lose out on on emotional ties and human relationships. It's something yeah, you, that you, you um yeah, and th- and that striving for intimacy comes out, I think, in your in in your search, if that's the right word. Um, for meaning perhaps through sexuality. You say any serious Mm -hmm. talk about Americans' idea of love, their relationship to their body and sexuality must, oddly enough, begin with a talk about democracy. Is there something about American democracy that 
somehow encapsulates this loneliness, this isolation, this atomization? Well, again, another wonderful observation um, and another compliment to you as a reader. Yes, I think I think democracy is the mixed blessing at the heart of America, isn't it? Because uh, we we cannot have democracy unless we have an emphasis, a celebration of the self, an acknowledgement that our society isn't isn't made up of uh, of families or uh, tribes, but individual selves, you know, individual people. That is the reason why our democracy works. However, the very thing that makes democracy work, which is the emphasis on the individual, on, on the singular human beings, is also the reason why we become lonely, because um, we define our laws based on being, uh, you know, one, and, and therefore, the emphasis is far less um, on community, on families. And, and I think that is sort of the paradox at the heart of what we experience here. Um, as individuals, we, you know, we have electoral rights. We are um, one person, one vote. We are, um, you know, we are counted uh, equally before the law. And all these things, um, you know, are, are sort of our safeguards against dictatorship. Um, but they also make us lonely. And they also make certain things in our lives inefficient, um, including, say, you know, fighting COVID. Because, you know, our individuality becomes so important to us that we're unwilling to abide by what the state mandates, which is, say, the mask. Um, and, you know, China... Uh, which is not a democracy, does far more, uh, far better at, um, you know, uh, curbing, curbing uh, COVID uh, than we do because they, you know, they go out there and they ban people from getting out and they ban people or arrest people for doing certain things um, and, and are far more successful at, uh, at, at managing the disease than we are because um, we don't want to impinge upon individual rights. Roy, I like your section um, again on 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 the emotional, sexual, on the connection between emotional, personal, and the political. Um, you say, um, "I love you" comes so effortlessly to Americans of all stripes. So Americans love to say, "Excuse the pun." Americans <laughs> love to say, "I love you." Are you suggesting then that that is also a cry of loneliness, a need to reach um, out? Uh, perhaps. But I also think that um, I love you, like certain curses, um, uh, have have become filler words in in uh, you know certain conversations. You know, um, sometimes when we want to sign off, we say "love you." You know, we, we're not really saying that we love the other person. We're just trying to politely get off the phone. So I think so you mean um, <laughs> if, if, if I want to shut you up, I'll say I love you and shut you down, right? Yeah, love you. You know, it goes, you know, love you, but it's really um, a way of, you know, putting a period um, at the end of the conversation. Um, yeah, I think I think we say it, um, but we don't. We, we it doesn't come with the gravity that you know I love you comes in places um, like Iran. You know. Uh, it, it's it's um, 
it, it can be far less consequential. And it's also, you know, what makes the American I Love You interesting is that um, there's, a, there's a whole industry uh, designed around the notion of love. And therefore, yeah. it's... You, it's uh, um, yeah, you quote it beautifully. You say, uh, uh, from, from, from the printed patterns on panties in lingerie shops to finger-painted artwork made at daycare, uh, that industry um, makes a lot of money through those three words, I love you. Right. So, so you know, uh, these affections have been appropriated by big industry. And so I think um, it, they are um, far more, uh, uh, in some ways, uh, expressed for us by others, you know, including, say, Hallmark cards than, than we, uh, than, than by us um, as individuals. So I think uh, the, the trouble with the American I Love You is that um, it's become part of a, a much bigger industry uh, that, that um, and, and the stakes uh, for corporations are, um, are invested a great deal in, in them. Uh, Roy, at one point you say, America is the great equalizer. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm not sure whether you meant that satirically or not. Perhaps your father and his generation would have believed it. But surely America is, is, is perhaps today the most unequal society in the world. We had Dale Maharaj on the show recently, his book, Fucked at Birth, Recalibrating the American Dream for the 2020s. We've had book mm -hmm. after book after book, author after author talking about inequality in America. So yeah. mm -hmm. did you mean that? ironically or do you actually believe that america is indeed the great equalizer i think um i think america is in some ways a great equalizer but but that happens to be far more true about people who come here as immigrants than it is about people who have been born and raised here in certain parts of the country um, some of whose uh, uh, to which some of your writers have um, have spoken uh, very eloquently. I think uh, very sadly uh, that uh, oftentimes immigrants who come from from other countries to America have a better chance at um, so-called making it than do the native-born who are in you know the the Rust Belt in in the Appalachian in certain parts of America where industries have died and nothing else have come to replace them. And, and I think that uh, is the irony of America as, a, as an equalizer, because the immigrant uh, can still dream the dream that America promises uh, we can all dream. But, but very far and few between um, native born who don't have the advantage of being on the coast uh, can also share in that dream. Yeah, and unfortunately, of course, as you suggested earlier, some of the anti-immigrant vitriol is very much directed from, from the heartland. Um, you, you say uh, anti-immigrant vitriol is the other apple pie, apple pie being, of course, this uh, metaphor for what it is to be American. It's an mm -hmm. appropriate uh, subject today. Uh, lots of newspapers are full of hate crimes against Asian Americans. Um, attacks on Asian Americans in New York stoke fear, anxiety, and anger. New York Times headlines suggest today, and we don't even need to get into 
racism, Black Lives Matter. What is it about America? And you come from, you know, no society is is lacking anti-immigrant or anti-other vitriol. You know that from your yes. experience around the world. But what is it about America that seems to be generating so much anti-immigrant vitriol today? Um, well, uh, I think the most important thing to remember is that this is uh, a really American thing, that, that from the very beginning, um, from the foundation of this country after 1776, we have had a very strong anti-immigrant feelings. Um, and, and it's, you know, I, I guess the only consolation here is that um, the people in this country have exercised that anti-immigrant sentiment indiscriminately. So uh, it, this is the great irony we have been indiscriminate about discrimination against immigrants. So, for example, we have um, been, you know, as early as Benjamin Franklin, who hated Germans and thought that they were slow on the pickup and they were bad for the country and they would never master English, so they should never come, to, you know, to uh, objections to the French, um, or the Russians, because they were considered not white enough, um, to later the you know Chinese immigrants who came and practically built um, our our railway system, and then uh, were banned from you know from everything. There was a Chinese Exclusion Act until World War II, and then you know suddenly the Chinese were the good Asian immigrants, and then the Japanese became the pariah. Um, and then, you know, we wouldn't allow the Irish um, in certain parts of America. We didn't like the Irish. We certainly have exercised enough anti-Semitism um, that, you know, people who have studied World War II are clearly aware that we turned away the ships of uh, Holocaust survivors uh, from our harbors and sent them back to their deaths. So um, we have exercised anti-immigrant sentiments about practically all immigrant communities throughout America's history. Um, so it's no different. However, what you're suggesting is it's really no different today than it, it's no, ever been we're going, and it will always be the we're same. Going, we're going through um, a new generation, a new community of immigrants uh, that we have decided to hate for you know one reason or another. The, the thing that history tells us is that within a generation or two, we get over it. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, I call it a hazing ritual in the book, as if we, we want to burn everybody in the way that, you know, our own ancestors had been burnt uh, when they arrived. But then, you know, in a, in a generation or two, we seem to kind of incorporate them into the fabric of our societies and we get on. The, the difficulty is to make it um, and, and to make it intact from one generation to the next or the one after in order to make that transition. Um, that said, I think it's also important to keep in perspective that however bad we have been as Americans, and we have been terribly bad, um, compared to other Western European societies, we've done better. So this is as much a comment on how other Western societies have failed at incorporating immigrants into their own fabric um, as it is about, you know, uh, a compliment to us 
Right. Well, um, speaking, uh, speaking of other West European countries who have done a, a less good job with their past, yeah. you know, who we're thinking yeah. about, um, you, you note at the beginning of the book that in August 1984, I fled my beloved homeland, Iran. You, After many months of wandering through Europe as a refugee, I was finally admitted to the United States. So I guess, in a sense, you got lucky. Um, yeah. But I, I would have never. I mean, one of the things well, that was but, but let, let me to me about right. Trump right, I get was that. that I would have never got, gotten in. Um, right. But um, if you got into the wrong place, we had um, uh, the, the British journalist uh, John Kampfner on the on the show a few weeks ago. He said, why the Germans do it better? Notes from a grown-up country. Uh, mm -hmm. Kampfner, who's actually of part Jewish origins, acknowledges, of course, German history, but suggests yeah. that since the Second World War, Germany has been the grown-up country, the heart of Western civilization. Yes. Do you think you made a mistake? Do you regret coming to America, going back to 84? If you'd have settled in Berlin or Munich, do you think you'd have had a better life? Oh, um, I, I don't know. Um, I was actually, I happened to be thinking about that because um, the second book I wrote took place in Germany. So I, I happened to have spent a great deal of time in Germany um, doing research uh, on that book. And I feel greatly attached um, to, to, you know, spaces uh, where I was. Um, I don't think I made a mistake. Um, surprisingly, the only uh, defense I have for the claim is that uh, when you compare the success of the Iranian diaspora in America and in Germany, the Iranian immigrants in America, 20 years on, 30 years on, are far better off um, professionally, uh, you know, class-wise, academically, than other Iranians who went to Europe. Now, you know, it, it will be a huge sociological and historical, um, you know, undertaking to try to figure out how or why that happened, but it is true that there are no more successful, uh, better resettled, better adjusted and assimilated Iranian communities throughout the world. And there, there are 5 million of us around the world than the one in the United States. And I cannot attribute that to anything else but America's possibilities, which are still more um, for the immigrant than, than other European countries. Finally, Roya, uh, one of my favorite phrases from the book, you write, um, now is the American future. <laughs> American definition is, is forward looking. Um, yes. The book itself, I know you're based in uh, Connecticut and you wrote very much from an East Coast point of view. I'm just curious about your take on the West, on California in particular. Is... Um, is California, in your mind, the future of the future? If, if America, in, indeed, if now is the American future, um, is, uh, what, what is California and what is the West? Um, I think the West is uh, the place where we um, acquire um, or, it, you know, get somehow all of our new cultural habits and and fetishes. Um, I think uh, California is where, you know, all these new trends in, in health, in self-care, in, uh, you know, uh, cultural 
new undertakings begin. And one way or another, it somehow uh, makes its way over to the rest of us and to the East Coast. I remember um, being in California 20, 30 years ago, and somebody took me uh, to a an organic restaurant in California, and I had never heard or eaten you know, official organic food. Um, and now it's all the rage uh, everywhere. Um, so I think California is uh, sort of the, the, the cultural leader in many ways. And of course it is so, uh, as far as entertainment is concerned as well. Um, but I think what, what I meant to say uh, now is the American future is that Americans are forward looking. And unlike so many of us in other parts of the world, uh, they don't dwell so much on the past and tragedy. Well, appropriately enough, Roy, it's time to move on. Uh, it's been <laughs> a real pleasure and honor to talk to you. Uh, the you. author of A Beginner's Guide to um, America, uh, for, for uh, sorry, A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. Excellent read. I've been reading it all day. And I think perhaps, Roy, your next book, you can come out to California and really write about the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.